This is episode 31 of Trash Talking with Eco Warriors featuring Dr. Asha DeVos from Oceanswell, Sri Lanka. You're tuning in to Trash Talking with Eco Warriors, where women share inspiring stories about their careers in green business, sustainability, and conservation. Here's your host and founder of Trashy Beauty, Barbara Lee. A floating pile of whale poop. That's not something you get to say on air every day, but that pile of whale poop is what led Dr. Asha DeVos, a marine biologist and ocean educator, to her discovery of a unique population of Sri Lankan blue whales who don't play by the rules. Until Dr. DeVos's discovery in 2013, it was thought that all blue whales spent their time in warm waters calving and in cold waters feeding. She ended up discovering the only population of blue whales who were year-round inhabitants of the warm Sri Lankan waters. Since then, Dr. DeVos has become one of the most accomplished marine biologists in the world, starting her own organization to help promote the study of marine biology in her native Sri Lanka. I absolutely love that part of Dr. DeVos's personal mission is bringing her passion for marine biology to the underrepresented populations in developing countries. Who wants to be told as a kid that they can't do what they dream of doing? It was so inspiring to hear Asha's story of how she overcame all of her own personal challenges and pursued what she loved. Let's get trash talking. Asha, welcome to Trash Talking. Hi, it's great to be here. Amazing. If you want to explain to our audience who you are and what it is that you do. My name is Dr. Asha DeVos. I'm a marine biologist and ocean educator from the incredibly beautiful tropical island of Sri Lanka. I founded an organization called Ocean Swell, which is Sri Lanka's first marine conservation research and education organization. And I'm also the pioneer of blue whale research within the northern Indian Ocean. Cool. Tell us more about what that actually means. Like, what type of work are you doing? What does the organization stand for? I've been running the Sri Lankan Blue Whale Project for over a decade. And the intention of that work is really to understand this very unique population of blue whales that I always tell people I discovered when I found an aggregation of them and a floating pile of whale poop. That was sort of my eureka moment. Um, And so this project has sort of grown to understand the population, but also try to understand what their conservation needs are and try to address them on the ground. So our biggest problem that we face with the blue whales there is that they get hit by ships and get killed. So we try to resolve that. We're trying to work with the whale watching industry to create more sustainability, not just for the whales, but also for the livelihoods that are involved. And then we run sperm whale work. So the research with the Sri Lanka Sperm Whale Project is all about trying to understand what's the most meaningful conservation unit for sperm whales. They are such an incredibly unique species. They have these amazing social hierarchies and they're matriarchal. And there's so many things that have been discovered about them across the world that we're trying to now look at in Sri Lankan waters. They are um, even more exciting in our waters and that's something that we're starting to discover. So that's awesome. Uh, we do do some work with shark fisheries, but then we, on the other end of the spectrum, we also do education work because when I wanted to be a marine biologist at the age of 18, most Sri Lankans looked at me and asked me what marine biologists did and how I would use that degree on a beautiful tropical island, which is, of course, the irony, right? But um, I told them I'd have my own nation, which is what I've gone on to do. But the point being that now with my work, because I work a lot with media, I think a lot of people have seen what's possible and the fact that you don't just have to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, you can also be a marine biologist. And there's a whole generation of kids and students who are coming through who want to do this. But 70% of our coastlines are in the developing world. 
there's very little representation from that part of the world and I want to shift that. So the work I do is really trying to create opportunity in underrepresented parts of the world because I believe that if we really want to save our oceans, every coastline needs a local hero. Yeah, that's super cool. When did you start this project? So I set up Oceans for a couple of years ago, but before that, I'd been running the Sri Lankan Blue Whale Project for over a decade. I mean, the exciting part about this population is that they're actually a non-migratory population. They don't go to cold waters to feed and then come out to the warm waters to breed and carve. In fact, they're doing everything in these warm tropical waters around Sri Lanka. Uh, when I first discovered this population, I wrote off to some of my colleagues across the world who'd had experience, and I asked for guidance and some advice, and they all wanted to sort of take over the project. They would say things like, get us a research permit, and we'll get a team out to come and study this. And this just really shows that kind of parachute science mentality that plagues marine conservation in many ways and people like me are seen not to have capacity so for me this the whole idea of diversifying marine conservation creating opportunities for people who would not have other have opportunities to sort of create space for underrepresented people within the field is really i mean it has it's born out of my own experiences within the field Mm. Tell me more about how did you even realize that these whales were doing something different? Like, how did this all start? I tell people my eureka moment was an aggregation of blue whales and a floating pile of whale poop, which it actually was. I was on a whale research vessel that was circumnavigating the globe and it happened to be stopping in Sri Lanka. Um, I managed to get on, I wrangled my way on after th- three months of communication. And then we were off the southeast coast of the island and we were sailing on the ocean and we were tracking sperm whales at the time. So we were dropping underwater microphones into the ocean and kind of listening, eavesdropping on the world around us and trying to find sperm whales because we were trying to do some biopsy work with them. We were looking at the toxicology of the ocean environment and how that affects us by using sperm whales as a proxy. So we would play these sperm whale sounds on loudspeaker within the vessel and I could hear them. I knew they were around me. I was on watch, sort of keen to be the one to find these whales. But as we roamed around and my shift started coming to a close, I realized, like, you know, I didn't know where these sperm whales were. And I was getting a bit frustrated when out in the distance there was this gigantic exhalation, basically. And it was tall and incredibly powerful, and as I saw it, I realized immediately it wasn't a sperm whale. And so I urged the captain to try to get closer as we got closer and closer. I was desperate not to lose sight because obviously now here I am telling the vessel, like telling all these experience, you know, the captain and the scientific crew, like I think there's a blue whale out there. I was just the deckhand at the time. I was really polishing brass and cleaning toilet. My status was pretty low on that boat. But, you know, I appreciate that they took this leap of faith and they followed my kind of instruction to move in a particular direction. As we got closer and closer, I realized it wasn't just one blue whale, but there were six blue whales in an area the size of a football pitch, which was incredibly exciting. And I started reflecting on what I'd learned in my textbooks and my from my professors, because I was fresh out of undergraduate in Scotland. And uh, I realized that, you know, I remembered that my everything I'd read and heard told me that blue whales would undertake long-range migrations between cold feeding areas and warm breeding and carving areas. And so with that in mind, we started getting closer and closer. And then when we got to the spot, I was, you know, obviously I was all out there. I was hoping uh, I would see some mad breeding activity, which is, you know, I think everyone's dream, frankly. And also I was thinking that I'd see some calves. And this was not the case. 
as we sat there and watched these animals, they were just kind of hanging out, you know, diving, coming up to the surface, just kind of doing stuff that felt a little lazy, quite frankly. And there wasn't much mad activity that I was hoping for. And then, um, I mean, but it was a good thing we hung around for a bit because uh, that's when, you know, one of them actually pooped, right? And when I saw that, I realized that this was an incredible moment because seeing an animal poop means that they're feeding somewhere close. And these are warm tropical waters. Sri Lanka is five degrees above the equator. So for me at that point, I realized that these whales were breaking all the rules. They weren't <laughs> going to cold waters to feed, right? Like, and that's what's exciting. It was like, we had these stereotypes built for them. And these whales were saying, uh-uh, we don't fit into that stereotype, right? We we like warm water, which I fully, fully appreciate. I'm a warm <laughs> person, right? So yeah, so it was super, like it was that moment when it, shifted on its head for me and I was like you know what I want to kind of dedicate my life to understanding these blue whales making sure the world knows that there's this population that's doing something incredibly different that's super exciting and also making sure I'm protecting them that's super cool how old were you at the time I was 22 that's amazing so it was a little bit ago yeah yeah and so what happened from there like what was the trajectory of your your career since then Yes. So things started very slowly because um, when I first saw this and I realized something special was happening, I contacted these professors across the world and asked for help and guidance. And everyone was excited, but they all wanted to do the research themselves. So they were talking about me getting their research permits so they could come and do the research. And I was like, no way. You know, this is my discovery. I'm going to make sure that it's a born and bred project in Sri Lanka. And yes, we do have capacity in our countries. So it was very, very slow start. Um, I started writing a proposal for research that night uh, because I was so excited. There was very little work done on blue whales before that in Sri Lankan waters. There were two papers written 20 years before that. No, actually 30 years, sorry, 30 years before that. And so there was nothing in between. And this was something that I was super excited about. But it took me about five years to start the project, the Sri Lankan Blue Whale project, because I was getting no support and I had no funding. And so I had to work and save some money. And then I eventually, you know, I lost my job, which was possibly the best thing that ever happened to me. Oh, wow. I was working at a, yeah, I know, I was working at a conservation nonprofit that, you know, people would die to get into. And I was dying to get out of because I, <laughs> me, wasn't that exciting. I wanted to do research and build knowledge. And so this was like this moment. It was like, they were like, sorry, we have no more funding for you. And I'm like, this is the best news ever. <laughs> and they were like, no one has said that to us. I was like, well, surprise. Well, you know? that was, was that immediate for you? Like you were immediately like, this is the best news ever. It didn't take oh, you like absolutely. a moment to process that. No, because you know what? I think I, I was sort of like sitting in this job. I was not happy in it. Um, I was sitting in it because I'm trying to network and connect uh, into the Sri Lankan conservation, Marine Conservation Committee that didn't exist, but in the conservation community and with government. I'd been away for about six years because I'd been doing my undergraduate uh, at that time or, or f four years. And so I kind of was trying to find my space again. Where did you do and your, so, what was the name of the school where you did your undergraduate? So I did my undergraduate at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Whoa, um, why did you pick there? Actually, so I actually did um, some conservation work in uh, Bonaire, the Caribbean island. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. And the gal who was doing her master's was actually from St. Andrews as well. Ah, there you go. Well, I actually picked St. Andrews because it's actually one of the 
best schools in the world to study marine mammal related research mm-hmm. and I that's sort of the path I want to go wanted to go down so I, I yeah I took me the bullet start sucked up the cold and I went off there so <laughs> that was a big transition at the age of 18 to make but it was totally totally worthwhile for sure amazing it's a good decision yeah Cool. So you've um, lost your job and you're yeah, so super stoked. <laughs> I was super stoked. Yeah. Like nobody's ever said that ever, but I was. And because it suddenly gave, created this space that I was trying to create for myself to go out and start doing research on these blue whales. There was no infrastructure in place for it. So I started basically kind of a whale watching industry had just started. So I negotiated my way onto some of the boards and I said I'd talk to tourists in exchange for um, <laughs> some time on the boat, right? So so I could spend a bit more time with these whales and kind of, like, look at them and, like, try to understand where they were and what they were doing. And, like, I don't know, I just needed a little more to put into my proposal. And then, you know, as I was doing this, I started thinking about the fact that these whales were obviously really incredibly interesting. They were doing something different. I started calling them the unorthodox whales because they were breaking these stereotypes that we built for them. I'm looking around for people who could support my research, still thinking that there were people out there. And I realized also that for me to understand why these whales were behaving the way they were, I needed to understand how the environment impinged on them. And so I started looking at sort of oceanography labs and I found this professor who Turned out to be Sri Lankan. I didn't go to him for, because he was Sri Lankan. I happened to meet him because he happened to be in Sri Lanka. He was he was based in Australia, in Western Australia. He happened to be in Sri Lanka a few weeks down the line. I met up with him and I said, look, I'm interested in trying to understand what's going on with this population by looking at the oceanography of the area. Now, oceanography is a completely different kettle of fish from marine biology. Marine biology is something I can do and I understand. Oceanography is very physics and maths and equation oriented. And I was like, I don't know why I'm going down this path, but I know I need to. I got accepted into the PhD program at the University of Western Australia, where I started, you know, kind of studying marine mammal research coupled with oceanography and trying to understand what was influencing these aggregations, why these whales were not leaving our waters. I mean, that was a really big question for me and what was going on. Yeah. And so that was sort of where I moved to next. And it, when I was actually doing my PhD in my second year, an Australian news channel, Channel 7 Australia, came out to Sri Lanka and they wanted to do the first, you know, kind of little documentary on my work and the blue whales there. And that's really when things took off. I mean, overnight, um, there was, you know, my face was plastered all over the TV about the work I was doing. Millions of people started watching it when it was uploaded on YouTube. Thousands of Sri Lankans were writing to me and saying they didn't know there were whales in our waters mm. before they saw the documentary, right? So it was a really, it caused a big shift in Sri Lanka, in, in what Sri Lanka knew, but also what the world knew about Sri Lanka. Um, and then it's kind of been this really incredible upward trend. I mean, I finished my PhD. I went on to University of California, Santa Cruz, where I did my postdoc, also focusing on whales, but also at this point studying the impact of ship strike on the blue whale population, very specifically in Sri Lanka. And then, you know, I moved back to Sri Lanka to establish Ocean Swell and the biggest, best decision I've ever made. I mean, my heart and soul has always been dedicated to Sri Lanka. I moved away because I couldn't study marine biology in Sri Lanka. But Mm -hmm. that's why I've gone back to try to create opportunity and to showcase to the world what we in, in our countries are capable of. Yeah. And so are the waters around Sri Lanka protected? Uh, 
small, very small parts of it. Actually, less than 1% of our oceans are protected. Oh, wow. So, not a lot. Yeah. I mean, um, whales get blanket protection through one of our, the fauna and flora protection ordinance. Yeah. They're, it's just blanket protection and it's not very specific and it doesn't really stop people from doing much because enforcement isn't very strong. Mm, okay. Interesting. And so during this time when you're like trying to establish all these things and pursuing all your, all your degrees, which is pretty incredible, how many people thought you were crazy? Oh my God. (laughs) That's a great question. So I don't know. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, when I started out like, you know, like at 18, like people were like, what are you going to do with your degree? Like, how does it, there's no scope for it in Sri Lanka. And I literally, I was just like very confused because I was like, I'm doing marine biology. This is an island in the (laughs) tropics, right? Like to me, it was mind blowing that people couldn't see the potential of what I was trying to achieve here. Um, I, my parents said, do what you love and you'll do it well. So that was really the only thing that I clung on to because everybody else was like, ah, yeah, and then you're going to move away and you're not going to come back to Sri Lanka and that's what's going to happen. And I was like, no, I'm going to serve Sri Lanka. I'm going to carve my own niche. And to be fair, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do and how I was going to carve that niche, but I wasn't about to let those people know that. Right? <laughs> so I'm like totally like being a little bit overconfident and then inside I'm like kind of shriveling up. But then over the course of it, you know, like, I'm a woman in a male-driven society in South Asia, in a community of humans that believes that you can only be a doctor, lawyer, and engineer and be successful or a cricketer or a business person. (laughs) You know, there are like, that's a handful of things you can do if you want to be successful. So people really judged me, you know, for the longest time. I mean, even today, some people say, isn't it a man's job, right? Like, and that's baffling because... I don't think you have to be a particular gender or have a particular background to care for something. And that's all I do. I care for the oceans for the sake of like our future generations. And so I don't think it matters who I am and where I come from, as long as I'm dedicated and passionate and trying to achieve that goal. Right. Um, But yeah. And then I've come up with a lot. I mean, you know, I've had plenty of people try to stand in my way, particularly men. And I think it's just that they just couldn't cope with the fact that, I was a young woman doing something that was adventurous and also contributing scientifically to the world and, you know, trying to protect something. And so not just crazy, I've just had people who are jealous and I've had, I mean, I still deal with all of that, you know, people just trying to stop me. And as my voice has got louder, their voices have got smaller. So I'm not too bothered. (laughs) So... I'm kind of wondering, like, I, I know that you have the story about the well poop and being out on the boat and everything yeah. like that, but where did the first spark for you that you even, like, realized that you cared about the environment? I mean, you know what? I grew up in a family that was led by curiosity, and so we grew up, my brother, I have an older brother, my brother and I, basically, we didn't have traditional pets like cats and dogs. We had, like, grasshoppers and scorpions and, you know, you caterpillars like in our bedroom right we were we'd watch science in action right there there like we'd watch metamorphosis and we'd watch you know grasshoppers bouncing around and like try to understand all of that in our bedroom and that's really where my love for science came from it was just just that exposure to the natural world and and our parents like not confining us and giving us these boundaries we would come back from school and we'd spend the whole evening in the garden just running around climbing trees right so you learn about gravity when you fall out of a tree i can tell you that right (laughs) so these i mean it was real life experience that made me uh fall in love with science and then when i was about six i was exposed to you know national geographic magazine so my parents would bring back secondhand copies 
And I flipped through the pages and I think, wow, I want to be one of those people. I want to go where no one else will ever go and see things no one else will ever see, right? So I was kind of almost replacing the faces of the people in those magazines with my own, with a dream of becoming an adventurer scientist. And then I fell in love with water. Uh, my parents continued to expose us to people. I mean, we weren't like a beach-going family, but we, my parents exposed us to really important, interesting people and ex- allowed us to explore. And my parents, ex- uh, you know, introduced me to Arthur, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who uh, is the person who wrote 2001 Space Odyssey. He's one of the fathers of satellite technology. He lived in Sri Lanka and he moved there to dive the shipwrecks in, around the island. And so I would sit with him and he would tell me stories about these incredible things he'd see underwater, right? So he piqued my interest and he would leave me hanging every time. Like, he'd say, <laughs> oh, that was this, yeah, like, he'd be like, there's this big brown skin that floated past me. And I'm like, what is it? And he goes, it was amazing. It was huge. And you're like, yeah, but what is it? And he goes, I don't know. I had to come up from my dive. And so that was it, right? So I'm like, what? I need to figure out what this is, right? <laughs> So like, so, you know, I was very, you know, exposed to the right kind of people in the right sort of setting. And I had, an enabling childhood, I would say. Um, and so by the time I was 18, I was kind of like resolute in the fact that I wanted to be a marine biologist. There was no other way to co- combine inv- adventure and science. And yeah, like I, I grew up in the tropics. So like the environment is like in your house and outside your house. Like, like we have animals all over our houses and you coexist. And so I think that's kind of, I mean, Sri Lanka is a beautiful country. Yeah. So. Yeah, I grew yeah. up in Hawaii, so oh, nice. yeah. <laughs> similarly, so you know like. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> similarly, like I'm very partial to warm waters. <laughs> and, oh yeah, for and sure. also like I think a lot of people that I know who are from islands, I think get it a little bit more because um, it's such a small, acute environment that it's mm-hmm. hard to ignore the effects of what happens to it. Oh yeah, absolutely, for yeah. sure. So what kept you going when you had these challenges and people who were being unsupportive in your career? Well, my parents and I, like everything in my story always boils down to my magic ingredient, which is my parents. They still are. And I mean, I think, you know, they just said, like, do what you love, you'll do it well, which was a very powerful statement. I knew they wanted to educate me, which is great. And I knew that they were happy for me to go down the path that made me happiest. They acknowledged that I knew what was best for my own life, which was huge because in my communities, Honestly, if you're not a doctor, lawyer, engineer, or a business person, you're kind of wasting your time. That's how we've been taught, right? Yeah. But I was like going off this, literally off the deep end, no pun intended, <laughs> um, you know, experimenting in a field that nobody really understood or had any idea about. So that was a big thing. I also like, I started to realize that there was this community that was rallying around me that believed in what I did. And there were these naysayers and these voices that could be drowned out with those voices. I also kind of, I guess I believed in myself. You know, I believed that I could do this. And I, I was also just so incredibly excited about the potential of what was possible. And I think I just didn't know any different. So, I mean, I have to say there were times when I would like cry for hours on end. I mean, when my first, um, the you know, the Channel 7 Australia documentary was put up on YouTube, my supervisor, my PhD supervisor said, wow, you know, someone's put it on YouTube, just don't read the comments. So, of course, I read the comments, right? Like, that's what oh, no. someone says, don't do it. And then I spent, like, the next four hours crying because there's all these people who were, like, anonymous, definitely Sri Lankan men, who were, like, 
trying to like slander me, like trying to break me down. And they were like, what do you know about what you do? You're not even Sri Lankan. Because I was studying in an Australian institution, they decided I wasn't Sri Lankan, right? Mm. And they, it was like, there was no depth to why they were criticizing me. They couldn't criticize my science. They couldn't criticize like what I was trying to achieve. So they just criticized me as a woman, right? And this is the saddest part. And so, you know, I don't know what it was, but I think there's always been a fire inside me that, like, I just, someone actually told me, hate and jealousy means you're doing something right. And I think that's also been a very important statement for me. Um, And I just continue to grow and grow this group of the tribe around me that I know will uplift me when I need uplifting. And I, I don't know, that's such a vague answer, but it's just been like this journey of trying to figure out how to keep afloat and I think I've kind of done it and now like honestly as my voice started getting bigger I realized their voices were getting smaller and they can still try to attack me but you know today they're what they say and they do is shut down very easily by the work that I'm doing across the world and I and that's the advice I always give young people and you know particularly women I say look work so hard and I mean women unfortunately we do have to work harder than men we live in a world that's not fair it's not equitable so this is it right but if you work hard enough suddenly it doesn't matter what your gender or your background is people see you as a necessity to solve a problem and that's what I've become so yeah that's helped that's awesome I love that um, and love that your parents are uh, behind all of this. What, what did they oh, do? Yeah. So my dad is an architect and a monument conservator. So he's, he restores World Heritage sites. Um, and he's restored two of the most important sites in Sri Lanka. So that's amazing. Um, and my mom, is a, she's a nurse and a midwife by training. And she worked and she, you know, so she's not Sri Lankan. She's actually Gujarati, born and brought up in Africa, moved to England, met my dad. She was working she moved across the world after she married my father. And uh, so she she worked for a little bit as a nurse, but she couldn't continue working just because she was a foreigner. And at that time, it was a bit difficult. So she hasn't worked in her particular field, but she's always kind of been like worked for my dad in the background. My dad has his own architecture practice and stuff. So uh, so she, she did that. But I think the most important job she did was that she brought up two kids. I mean, goodness, like I will tell you as a person who has an incredibly <laughs> busy life, an incredibly exciting career. I think what she has done is, you know, far beyond what I have ever done, right? Um, When I was young, she turned around to me and said, you know, I want you to stand on your own two feet. You're a girl. If we can educate one child, it'll be you because your brother, he's a boy and the system is built for boys. He will find his path no matter what, right? So those are the, the first most important words that I ever heard. Just the fact, and at that time it was kind of ridiculous because like she's like telling a six-year-old to stand on their own two feet while a six-year-old standing on her feet, right? So like I clearly missed the point at that point. But like I think as I've grown up, I've understood that, you know, it was more than just like the physical standing on my feet, right? So she wanted me to be independent. She wanted me not to depend on anyone. And she wanted me to like live my life, my own life, right? So she basically told me that while she did not see me different from my brother, the world would at some point. But that wasn't a problem, right? She was going to equip me for that world. And I cannot underestimate 
the power of what she said to me at that time and how I think it's influenced me subconsciously through my life and given me the confidence to believe that I am no different, I am no less, right? Uh, that I am as good as I want to be and in their eyes better than I will ever be, right? So, or I can believe I will be. And so for sure, my mother's role in this family of ours is the most important role that anyone has played. My father's success has been because he had the support of this incredible woman who um, in many ways made huge sacrifices to support him, but also to bring up these kids who have then, you know, grown into their own and become what they dreamed of. And, and I tell her every day, and you know, the saddest part is women like my mother don't see how important their role is because society does not value how important the role of a mother is or how tiring and hard and difficult and how much strength and courage you need to be a mother. And I tell her every day, I say, look, you have to see your career and your accomplishment as your two children. And today I shine across the world. I am an unusual voice. I come from the developing world in marine conservation, which is incredibly Western-centric. I have carved a niche on a global platform because of her. And I want her to see me as her greatest achievement. And again, I will say to all the mothers out there, to women juggling families and jobs and everything else, I respect you a thousand percent. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Shifting the conversation a little bit because we're wrapping up. What does whale poop look like? Oh my god, it's so beautiful. <laughs> it is. I'm telling you, the blue. I mean, blue whale poop is the most beautiful whale poop in the world. I tell people, if you can ever find anything more beautiful, um, send me um, a photograph. Samples are a bit difficult, but a photograph and prove <laughs> it to me, right? But blue whale poop is bright, like brick red in color. It is so phenomenal to look at. It is mesmerizing. And it's because they feed on tiny shrimp and it comes out in these giant, well, it's clumpy at first, lumps at the surface. And if you don't get there fast enough, it starts to dissolve. And I have a freezer full of whale poop, which I tell people, and they look at me funny, which I fully don't understand because I think it's so important to have a freezer. But I mean, I do it for science. Okay, let's be clear. And there is no food in my freezer with whale poop. Which is the next question people ask me. But it is a portal into a world that we do not have any other way of studying. And I think it's really cool. That's awesome. Um, I was going to ask you your funniest story, but I feel like we've covered enough funny stories. Yeah, my life is a funny story. Yeah. (laughs) Ironically and also not ironically. Awesome. And so if people want to follow you and check out the work that you're doing, where, where can they find the information online? So I um, I have personal accounts on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, which are at Asha Divorce. And then the organization has at Oceanswell ORG, also on all three platforms. So do follow us. Um, there's lots of exciting stuff and both platforms have totally different messaging. So check out the stories and support. That's awesome. Asha, thank you so much for being on the show. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, just re-listening to that story made me admire all of Asha's scrappiness even more. Who spends three months to write requests just to get on a whale research boat as a deckhand and scrub toilets, and then to get on whale-watching ships just to collect more data for her research proposal? It's a small reminder that if there really is something that you want, go for it. Putting in the hard work and being resourceful does lead to success. Also, who gets to grow up casually chatting to Arthur C. Clarke? That's just wild. 
Speaking of scrappy projects, have you checked out the Wally Shops Kickstarter to launch across the US? I've made my pledge and I hope that you will too. Zero waste shopping should be a thing for everyone and we have to prioritize the solutions that are going to make a wide lasting impact. There's a link in the show notes if you would like to help fund the future of zero waste. And if you want a reminder of just how inspiring the Wally Shop is, listen back to episode one of season two, where we talk to Tamara Lin from the Wally Shop. We go over her career of working at Amazon to how she started the first zero waste grocery delivery system. As always, thanks for tuning in. We'll be running one last episode before we close the season for the year. If you're a fan of the podcast, don't forget to follow us on social and show your support by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you follow us on social, you'll be the first to know when we relaunch with season three. Stay green, Eco Warriors. Thanks for talking dirty with us. Tune in next week for more trash talking with Eco Warriors. For more inspiration, follow us on Instagram at Trashy Beauty Code.